This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. Today, I'm talking with Richard Swan about his debut fantasy novel, The Justice of Kings, the first in the epic trilogy. Here's my review. The Justice of Kings opens with our young narrator, Helena, traveling from town to town as a clerk to the King's Justice, a learned and idealistic man called Von Walt. The first few chapters build towards a pivotal incident, the raising of the village of Rill and the immolation of its inhabitants. Von Walt, who has leeway on how he applies common law, has discovered the village still worshipped the old gods and imposed a fine as a punishment, privately cautioning the local lord to just worship more discreetly. However, Patria Claver, the priest who traveled with Helena's party, had his own ideas about how to handle pagans, and he returns with a party of crusading soldiers to meet out death to the inhabitants. This sets up the central conflict between von Walt, a rational man who prides himself on a measured and appropriate response, and the nobles who back Patria Claver, amassing a private and punitive army of crusaders. While von Walt has been dispensing a king's justice in the hinterlands, the political landscape of the empire have shifted, and soon von Walt and his crew find themselves struggling to maintain control of events in a shifting world. Before I start the interview with Richard in Australia, he's going to do a short reading. I sprinted across the cobbles. Despite Sir Radomir's orders, there were still dozens of people and watchmen milling about in the street, trying to catch a glimpse of what was happening. Move! I shouted, shouldering my way through the crowds. A barrage of curses followed me as I pushed my way to the town jail. I thrust the door open so hard the handle cracked the plaster on the wall behind. Dubin, I shouted. Bressinger appeared from the next room. What? he shouted, his features creased in confusion. Where's Sir Conrad? We both turned sharply as the first screams and the ringing of steel on steel filled the air. What is going on? Bressinger asked, his hand going to his sword hilt. 
They're coming for Fisher, I said breathlessly. Resting his eyes were wide as he watched the Margrave's soldiers pour into the town. Perhaps two dozen made it through before the watchman had the presence of mind to let the gate fall closed again. Immediately the soldiers started fighting their way up the gatehouse stairs. I watched Sir Adamir frantically directing men to fight. What do we do? I asked, breathless with fear. We must guard the prisoners, Bressinger said. Tis what Sir Conrad would expect. I groaned on the verge of frustrated tears. Must we always stick so rigidly to the rules? Bressinger pulled out his dagger and handed it to me. His expression was firm. I was a soldier in the Reichskrieg, Helena, he said. I have seen what the world is like without the rules. Then he slammed the door closed and barred it. Hi, Richard. I've got you on a show now to discuss the justice of kings. Hi, Gabrielle. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Looking forward to our chat. Well, let's start off with the questions. Uh, justice of kings is all about the emperor's justice and his entourage of two people. Tell us a little bit about the work that the Emperor's Justice does. Is it just one kind of role, or does he or she do different kind of things? Yeah, certainly. So, um, yeah, in, in essence, I think a, a justice is like a, a traveling court. Um, so, uh, I mean, in a, in a legal sense. So, there's sort of like a, a prosecutor, uh, a judge, and uh, uh, an executioner as well, where necessary, all, all in one. So they have a, a sort of a, a supreme, uh, supreme authority to um, enforce the common law, the, the secular common law within the empire. And um, in the world of the novel, the Soviet Empire, it just sort of dispatches these justices um, and they sort of tour the imperial hinterlands and they just make sure that all of the little settlements there, all of the kind of the villages and little towns are adhering to the to the law in, in a way that, um, you know, where, where these towns exist away from the larger urban areas, which kind of have more defined, you know, legal structures and, and buildings, and et cetera. These, these are kind of more further removed villages and things. And, um, and yeah, they're just they're kind of historically, these people are the, the last word on the law, really. And uh, in, in the world of the novel, they're sort of being supplanted by a broader... The secular legal infrastructure as, as the law as the empire sort of solidifies and, and coalesces, but um, so they're becoming a little bit out, outmoded. But uh, but that's kind of their job, as I say. They're just judge, jury, and executioner all in one. So the bigger towns have, for example, sheriffs and guards. Exactly. Do uh, does an emperor justice then? Does he or she do the work of the sheriff as well? Are they above a sheriff? In the structure, yeah, so essentially, in in the yeah, in the world of the uh, novel, they a justice is essentially second only to the emperor himself. So they enjoy absolute um, legal authority, and um, they have the power. They're effectively a policeman as well. So you know, they they have the power to investigate crimes, and um, in fact, that's what happens. That's you know what mm -hmm. things is ultimately about. It's about an investigation and. Um, they what happens is when they enter a town which has a, you know as you say like a sheriff and a, a constabulary and a, and a, perhaps a courthouse and, and a judge already there that they automatically take precedence over all of those things so um, I think in, in the justice of King the book itself um, 
Von Bolt travels to a town called Galen's Vale where there has just been a murder and by what's called the law of precedent he takes the reins of the investigation from the existing sheriff so as I say they have absolute authority to do basically anything that start you know anything to do with crime including its kind of investigation and prosecution and um adjudication (laughs) well one way the emperor's justices are different from uh the other legal elements portrayed in the novel is they have magical powers and uh von vault Mm. the one that we're following more closely has a few not all the justices have the same ones but von vault makes use of a rather controversial magical power Tell us a little bit about that one and what people's reactions are when he utilizes it. Mm, so, so yeah, so every justice has um, usually at least one, normally two magical powers. And the first one that they all have is the emperor's voice, which is the, the power to, to compel a person to, to speak the truth. Um, and uh, but the one that I think we're alluding to is is the necromancy. Von mm-hmm. Bolt mm-hmm. can um, yeah he can he can kind of speak to the dead and this is a this is a kind of it's it's controversial within the empire because it's it's obviously quite horrifying and I think it it's a it's a power that's jealously guarded by the the order of the magistratum and it's kind of shrouded in mystery and kind of opens a door to an old kind of magical and arcane world which has kind of been occluded by powers of kind of civilization and, and secularization um, and so it, it, it doesn't really fit generally within the kind of um, you know what, what in general imperial life it, it's, it's seen as a kind of outdated and dangerous practice so people don't like it when justices do it but at the same time it's it's, in, it's obviously incredibly probative whether it works because you can find out extremely quickly if someone has been murdered and who did it because the victim themselves can tell you. So what I wanted to do when I was writing the novel, because the, the powers that Von Bolt has are so powerful as investigative tools, uh, what I wanted to make sure was that they had uh, appropriately high uh, kind of levels of, of energy expenditure. So in the case of the Emperor's Voice, you know, when Bombot uses it, it, it often exhausts him. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the necromancy, I, I had to kind of apply limits to it. So, for example, um, you know, it only kind of works well if the person is kind of freshly killed and <laughs> kind of their, their head is, is kind of you know, intact, you know, so they haven't had their kind of their brain smashed to pieces. Um, and, uh, and, and various, you know, if, and they're kind of generally well disposed to the justice so they're not like an enemy um, because, uh, you know, if, for example, a justice were to kind of conduct a seance with an older corpse, you know, a, a very a kind of one that's in a state of decomposition and maybe perhaps the person has been dead for sort of three or four days and, you know, their mind was in a very kind of dark place when they were killed, then that, that soul, if you like, becomes prey to sort of predatory entities within the afterlife and so it becomes very dangerous for a, a sort of a necromancer or, or, or a justice to kind of commune with that person so every time Von Bolt does exercise the necromancy he's taking a great risk mm-hmm. and it's obviously like a, a, a frightening and, and very distressing process so 
I wanted to make that clear so that it, you know, every time they come across a body, Von Voss can't just be like, who murdered you? And the body kind of says, <laughs> oh, it was that person. And that's, you know, case closed because it'd be a very short book if that was the case. Yeah, that would take away all the suspense. So uh, in the review, I also allude to the burning of the village of Rill. That happened before the murder that he's investigating most of the book. Uh, the burning has unexpected repercussions for Von Vault, and as it turns out, actually for the Empire. Von Vault and his clerk, Lana, happen to be present at an event which becomes pivotal to an evolving shift of power and consequent political instability for the Empire. Uh, there is a theory put forth as to how that incident affects Von Vault. There's actually the theory of entanglement. Can you talk about that for a bit? Of course, yeah. I think one of the themes that I explored in, in The Justice of Kings and, and the broader trilogy is essentially this idea of, you know, sort of the butterfly effect or you know how small uh, and apparently inconsequential things can kind of balloon into large and, and world-shaping events. And mm -hmm. in the book, justices, you know, from hundreds of years before the events of, of the novel, um, kind of examined this this uh, this phenomenon, and they call it the, the sort of the temporal pathway, or the kind of, if you imagine time flowing as a river, and every time something eventful happens, we kind of, branch away a little bit from the, the main flow of time. And so the theory of entanglement within the novel is this idea that, um, a bit, I, I don't know if you're familiar or you've heard of this idea called the, the great man of history. Mm -mm. Um, it's essentially the idea that there are certain individuals, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of an outmoded historical concept now, it was kind of more popular within Victorian times, but essentially the idea is that certain people um, it has such a, a huge impact on on their, their time that they exist. You know, for example, like Alexander the Great, um, that they you know they change the course of history, and mm -hmm. these individuals you know they do that. And I think the idea of entanglement is is a bit like that. You know, it's this idea that um, you know the protagonists have been you know they're not they're not only the main characters of their own story, but they become you know literally the main characters of history. They've Sort of become entangled in this temporal pathway, and so for as long as they continue to live and, and do certain things, you know, every action they take shapes the future. And um, you know, just like those people on the on the mortal plane, so too can the entities of the afterlife kind of pull the strings and sort of divert the flow of time as well. And that's something I kind of explore in the second two books. So as I say, yeah, it's, this, it's kind of this butterfly effect kind of theory that. Um, you know, they've, they've become entangled in these great sort of world-shaping events, and you said that kind of you know the, the hand of fate is now kind of drawn to them in a, in, a, in a sort of a very tangible way, rather than this kind of nebulous way. Right. So you've used very specific incidents and a specific group of people to actually talk about this great shift and how. Uh, von Walt, mm. who's one of the emperor's justices who used to have so much power, mm. how they're beginning to have less power. And that's why I'm going to move on to the point of view issue quickly, uh, because that has mm. to do with it. Uh, 
And I'll tell you why I yeah. think you chose, <laughs> but I'll let you answer too. You used the point of view of a young <laughs> female narrator, and you're a mid-30s mm. man. So I would think that's a little yes. bit of a challenge. And one could say, well, mm. since this is about Von Vault, or he's almost a central mm. character, why not write it from his point of view? But I suspect that has to do yeah. with drawing back and looking at the longer and greater historical and geographic implications. So, but tell us a little exactly bit. Right. Yeah. So expand on that for us. Was it was it hard to uh, yeah. write the novel from that POV? I, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, in the sense that I, I didn't think I took... Um, what I wanted to do with Helena was I wanted to, as you've already said, Said, I wanted to kind of examine. I wanted to. I wanted to examine von Bolt and his actions through a lens, rather mm -hmm. than have his his own point of view, which I, I think would have been a less interesting novel. And so I, the reason I chose Elena as a as a younger um, as a young woman, I think she's sort of she's nineteen and in the Justice of Kings, and she's sort of turned twenty, I think, in the second book. So she's obviously quite a young woman. Is is for a number of reasons, and one was I wanted to sort of capture. A more naive um, perspective. So, you know, Helena, which would have worked for either a male or a female character, to be fair. Um, so, someone who was more naive. So, someone who was still young and someone who was still, you know, sort of learning about the ways of the world. Um, and, and you know, in the book, she is she's one of Clark, but she's also his apprentice. So, he's mm -hmm. teaching her how to become a justice. So, it was a way of. Um, it was a way of having someone young enough who could have a concept explained to them and therefore to the reader. So it was a kind of a convenient narrative choice. Um, secondly, I wanted to, um, the reason I chose a woman was because I wanted to examine a sort of a patriarchal society as a, as a sort of reflection of our own society, but in a way that distinguished itself from Sova. So over the capital city of the empire, which we visit in book two, is, is very distinct and different from the provinces. And mm -hmm. we spend all of book one in the provinces, and, and that is still a very parochial and, and patriarchal society. So it's a very male-dominated uh, narrative. And I wanted to use a, a, a female to um, explore that a little bit and kind of draw attention to it and, and certainly as we enter sober in the second book then we see how it's so different and so much more enlightened and and there's no kind of real distinction between the sexes and, and basically if sober can use you it will use you no matter who you are or what you look like <laughs> so they're just more interested in your abilities um and it also i think um you know I, there, there's no specific reason for this but they're, they're both heterosexual and so I wanted to. I, I don't have plans for a you know intimate romance between the two, but I wanted to. Um, I, I'm a great fan of kind of almost soap opera-like drama within um, within novels. I think you know it, it makes for interesting reading, and ultimately, I think if you you have to examine the human condition, you can have all of the kind of collapsing empires and battles and you know whatever you like. But if you neglect the human element, then it's not going to be an interesting novel. And I and I think having Helena as a as a young woman. Um, it opened up a, a, a very messy and slightly uncomfortable character dynamic between them because ultimately Von Volt is, you know, he's in his 40s, so he's much, much older. 
Um, but And I think because of the power dynamic between them, because Von Volk is ultimately Helena's protector and employer, um, she would be naturally drawn to him, but in a slightly unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. And I think Von Volk would be you know, drawn to her again in an unhealthy and, in, and an improper way. And I, I felt like that dynamic was an interesting one to explore as the trilogy goes on. Um, and I wanted to do it in a way that gave sort of Helena uh, agency uh, within that um, relationship, but, but also kind of reflected the, the disparity of power uh, and the nature of their relationship. So it was just a it was just a way of examining some interesting kind of more you know human themes and dynamics w- within the context of a you know the, uh, the wider narrative. So, so those are the real you know the main reasons really. Yeah, definitely made it more complex. Uh, I enjoyed that extra complexity, that extra layering, the possibility they're attracted, but uh, so far, so far no one's moved on them. And maybe another thing that I'll just allude to, and uh, we don't deserve to know the answer until we read all of your work, but (laughs) she writes it and reflects on the past. So it is clear that yeah. she has survived as the writer of, mm. or as the recorder of this history, but it's not yeah. so clear how Von Walt <laughs> will uh, yeah, continue right. on through these books. So that <laughs> creates a lot of suspense because he is a character that mm. we root for despite uh, the faults that uh, become exposed to him, on him uh, through the pressure yeah. of the events. He's still a likable character. Mm. Uh, so the village of Rill, uh, which starts off this rather dark path for von Walt, it's part of the former lands of Tull, and uh, mm. those were absorbed into the empire. And therefore, the official religion of the Empire of Sova, Nima's Creed, is now the religion mm. of Rill, officially. But Von Balt isn't yeah. outraged when he discovers that paganism continues to be practiced in Toll. And I think there are good mm. reasons that he isn't outraged. Uh, are the two religions mm. completely at odds with each other? Yeah, they they are they well they are in the arms. I mean, I think it's an interesting point because um, you know you're right in the sense that von Volt is is a, is a senior agent of the empire and, and therefore conceptually at least he should be very angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason the reason is that the Soviet Empire kind of is a bit like the Roman Empire in that as it expanded, it, it kind of absorbed. You know, the religions and, and the cultures and bits and pieces of those from other nations as it did so in the same way that the Romans basically stole all of the Greek gods. And so it's, it's a kind of, the demon creed is a sort of bit of a, a bastardized religion. It just took all of the pagan gods and the traditions and, and pretended that they had always been sovereign. And so I think the educated peoples in the empire and, you know, sort of particularly the justices who are you know, the ultimate arbiters of the secular common law, which it, itself is at odds with the, you know, the religious canon law. And so there's already a kind of ingrained uh, disdain for that. The, the, the justices are sort of hyper aware of this, mm-hmm. um, this kind of, you know, religious whitewashing. And so von Walt, who I think is not a naturally religious man any anyway, 
um, but you know, who, who, who admittedly does pay sort of lip service to the Lehman Creed because his position as a, a senior noble, a senior imperial noble demands that he does. Um, I don't think he really sort of cares about the practice of paganism, and I, and I think that sort of comes from that comes from two places. I think you know the first is that it's it's relatively harmless, uh, you know, at least in his experience. And then only the villages of real, you know, they're not killing anybody or you know sacrificing anybody or doing anything like that. They're just kind of quietly worshiping the old gods. And the second thing I think is that you know he he's a very sort of sensible and practical man, and he knows that. They're not going to stop practicing it just because he says so, because they already they already knew it was illegal, um, you know, when he arrived, and that hasn't stopped them. So, and in the novel, he kind of goes to sort of some length to avoid having to, you know, back himself into a corner where he does have to execute them because he doesn't want to, because he's just, <laughs> you know, they're just, you know, they're just doing a bit of, you know, dancing around a fire in the middle of the night. Um, and, and so I think, um, you know, he's, he's not out, he's not outraged. I think he, he would rather just kind of like, you know, hand wave his way past it. And, you know, and I think in the end, he does charge him a, a, a token fine and, and off he goes. And it's obviously Patrick Claver who, um, who orders the village to be burned against his will. But, uh, you know, I think for those reasons, he's, um, he's certainly not as angry as perhaps the empire demands that he should be. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, he's not very angry at the beginning of the book. And as you say, no. he's <laughs> he's sensible and practical. He's not very religious, but he is idealistic mm. about justice. He's a true believer. He's very much mm. takes his job, the essence of his job, seriously. And uh, yes. as we found out from your biography, you were a commercial litigator in London before you became a full-time yeah. writer. Uh, did you begin uh, your legal career as a true believer in justice too? And how did you end it? Were you more cynical <laughs> than Von Valt? Or... <laughs> I, I certainly think you know. I I did um, I, I studied law at university, and I think one of my um, my favourite uh, modules of of that degree was jurisprudence, which is the the philosophy of law. And that's probably quite obvious when you read the Justice of Kings, and I. And I, I, you know, you learn all about all sorts of different concepts, like you know, natural justice, which is the idea that um, you know, justice, uh, the idea of moral, the morals and ethics kind of exist outside of man-made laws. They're kind of there's a natural order to the universe, and we just kind of codify certain parts of that um, mm -hmm. as human beings. And then there's another, you know, one of the big concepts within the theory of law is this idea of sort of deontologism, which is you know, versus consequentialism, which is you know, which is the idea that um, you know, deontologists would say that what's important is that the rules, the rule framework is is the most important thing that ensures just and ethical outcomes. Whereas the consequentialists will say, well, it doesn't matter what the framework is as long as the outcome is just. Um, and so you know, it's, it's your sort of your classic argument of is it permissible to kind of torture someone who <laughs> who knows the code to a, a ticking time bomb? You know, and um, and so you sort of get into kind of very meaty ethical or debates about it. And, 
will know it's not because we don't commit torture under any circumstances. It's an absolute wrong. Whereas the, sort of the consequentialists will say, well, it's permissible in this instance because it's clearly the more just outcome to save the lives of, you know, however many innocent people are going to die in, in the explosion. So it, you, you examine these and they kind of plead to sort of broader themes of moral relativism and absolutism and, and the social contract and things like that. And I think in the in the book, you know, Von Volt, much like me, he kind of loves those academic concepts as well, and he likes talking about them and debating them with, you know, Helena and other people and, and applying them to his work. And, you know, so I, I, I did, you know, as you said, I, I did work in commercial litigation for so about 10 years or so and a bit of smattering of, you know, criminal law work placements and things, you know, while I was in my tra- training years. And I certainly did start my legal career with you know, very very high-minded you know <laughs> ideals about how it all was supposed to work and you know as you go on I think you know I don't think I'm jaded in, in, in the sense that um, I, I, I wouldn't consider myself a cynic I think I'm, I'm still a, a great believer in you know human nature I think people are inherently good and you know generally speaking um, and uh, but but I but I was <laughs> during the course of my career it did become re- remarkable to me how how much you can get away with um, if you make it expensive and time-consuming to, you know, achieve any kind of just outcome. So, you know, especially in commercial litigation and in big arguments between companies involving, you know, many hundreds of millions of pounds, which mm-hmm. is the kind of work I was doing. Um, you know, often some of the, you know, we would have potential clients come into the office and we would, yeah, we would speak to them and they would, you know, sometimes they would have very legitimate grievances and, and you know, very real problems and they had certainly been wronged, but, you know, they were going to ultimately, it's all about a cost-benefit analysis and if it's going to take kind of three years, as it could do, you know, very easily or longer to kind of get the assets, you know, recover the assets and it's going to cost them, you know, £2 million in legal fees and there's all kinds of offshore accounts, you know, that, that, and the assets have kind of been dissipated and stuff and sometimes the answer is, yeah, unfortunately, it's 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 not going to be worth the time mm-hmm. and effort. You're better mm-hmm. off just kind of drawing a line under and moving on. And and I think it's you know that kind of it's, it's very sad. It's a very sad state of affairs. But, you know that's what you get you come down to, and you, you know you can't achieve you know, justice in a very real sense for these people. So I certainly did become a bit more cynical, and I think that is reflected in, in you know Von Bolt's kind of character arc as well as the trilogy goes on and. And we kind of find out in sort of, you know, books two and three, you know, has he always actually been this kind of paragon of virtue or, or maybe the Helena is being a bit naive and, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but, but yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of where it's going. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you talk about uh, having to consider how litigation may be very uh, costly and take years to achieve an aim at which point it's not really worth it for most individuals to wait that much and to invest that much money Mm. and to try to get a corporation Mm. uh, to balance the scales because it puts Mm. a lens on an incident that you describe, kind of a pivotal character incident. Von Walt and Patria Claver continue to have more and more disagreements until Von Walt actually mm. uses a supernatural power to force a man to confess to killing some of the villagers of Rail. 
And then he executes him on the spot. No long-winded mm. trial that takes years. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, justice is served brutally, but it is served quickly and immediately. But how does this shift mm. the way that Helena and we as the readers view the work of the Emperor's Justice? Maybe reflecting on uh, what you're describing as a commercial litigator, maybe it's not such a bad thing. <laughs> No, quite. I, I think there's. I think one of the great benefits of being a justice is the kind of the immediacy of the, you know, of the, of the outcome. Um, where and then this, you know, the case that you're alluding to, it is a decapitation. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think in the beginning of the novel, it's the kind of you know, it's a, a fine you know, the following day, and so yeah, you know, that there is that kind of quick and, and ready justice. And one of the themes in, in the novel is, um, I think, one of the at one point in the book, kind of one Volta and Helena had a, a sort of philosophical debate about, um, you know, it, it, well, essentially it was institutional racism, but it's not uh, use those terms specifically. But, you know, Helena says, well, what happens if, um, you know, a justice, you know, is, is racist or bigoted in some mm -hmm. way, you know, cuts, some, cuts a man's head off who, who perhaps wouldn't have necessarily deserved it. And you don't hear back from, you know, and, and the sort of judgments go back to sober and it sort of takes, you know, a few weeks and months for the the, the law clerks there to kind of check the judgment and make sure it's all kind of above board and and, and you know, maybe if the clerk said, well actually maybe you shouldn't have cut his head off but you didn't merit that kind of punishment but the man's you know long dead so <laughs> you <laughs> kind of you know, them. Yeah. closing the, 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 the well, exactly yeah you, you've, you've shut the barn door after the horse has bolted and so it, it's a, it, it's it's why um, it's so important um, you know to make sure that a justice is is so you know rigorously trained and sort of even-handed and and um and they are kind of like a, a, a sort of a stickler for the rules and a sort of a paragon and i think you know the, the helena has been with von volta for sort of two years before the events of, of the first book and so what she has seen is von volta as be a sort of quite a patient uh, rigorous you know administrator of, of the secular law and you know here on, on he, as you say he beheads the man for you know, murder essentially, um, and in slightly kind of iffy moral circumstances, because of course, you know, in the book, I think the man in question is supposedly a chattel of the of the canon law, so of the of the church. So mm -hmm. in theory, at least, he's supposed to be untouchable, and and Bonvolt cuts himself anyway. So that's a kind of a legal nuance, and I think that's more shocking to Helena than anything, because. You know, in a very technical sense, von Volt wasn't actually entitled to behead the man, even though it was the just outcome. And I think, you know, that that comes back to, you know, we had an old um, we have an old adage in, in English law, which is it's, it's better for in the criminal sphere, it's better for ten guilty men to go free than one innocent man to be imprisoned. And I think, you know, one of the themes in the novel is this idea of legal procedure and and the kind of Important that that plays, and you know, when Von Volt abandons that and, and beheads the man anyway, even though, as I say, it's the right, in air quotes, the, the right outcome, the man does certainly deserve to die. In a very technical sense, he wasn't entitled to actually execute the man, and so it's that position again, that philosophical question of you know, what's better, the the outcome. You know, is the outcome or the rule? You know, the, the consequentialist versus the, the deontologist. And um, and Helena, you know, von Volta spent so long her teaching Helena to be a kind of you know this patient, rigorous applicator of 
of the laws of the land, and then suddenly he executes this man in a, in a sort of startling display of, of brutality. Um, and, and so I think that's sort of the very beginning of, of the awakening for her and the kind of the scales falling away from her eyes a little bit as she realizes that perhaps there's more sort of real politics, you know, going on here. Um, and, and it's not necessarily the, the high-minded ideals that, she, that Von Volt has been teaching her. Yeah, what we might say in the States is Von Vault and Patria Claver are kind of getting into a pissing contest. <laughs> exactly, exactly right, yes. <laughs> and Von Vault is no longer uh, free of his emotions when he's making decisions or no longer separate exactly, from his yeah. emotions. Well, uh, mm. when you're describing the world of your novel, you use many words of Germanic origin, such as Reichskrieg, yeah. as well as words derived from other languages. But for those who speak German, there are some inside jokes. For instance, <laughs> one of your characters, a wealthy man with not too high a moral standard, has the first name of Lebewohl, which means live well. And I was wondering mm. if you speak German, uh, if you've studied the histories of other country, countries and cultures, and if so, uh, how that informed your new series. I, the short answer is I, I don't. I, I, I spoke, um, I studied German at school for about two or three years. So, mm -hmm. you know, I have a, a, a knowledge of the kind of the basics of it and, um, you know, I just have, German general German vocabulary and words in in a general sense. So I can say you know gay and kino for example, <laughs> things like that. But um, but I, I haven't spoken it for obviously a very long time now. Um, and so I, I'm absolutely thrilled that you picked up on my little um, <laughs> jokes there. And there are there are others. I think both certainly um, certainly from my research as a lawyer as well in old um, in old the old Germanic tongue and um, Elena, mm -hmm. which obviously uh, comes from the Greek, which means shining light. So I, I did a, I did a few more as well when I was thinking because what I wanted to do with the with the novel was the Sover is a sort of this very Teutonic kind of um, uh, entity, and 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 the people have kind of quite Teutonic mores as well. So they're they're quite straightforward, they're quite blunt. You know, they don't mince their words, and they don't they're not overly emotional. And they sort of they consider sort of outward displays of emotion to be kind of vulgar and uncomfortable, and so I, I wanted to kind of reflect that in their society, but at the same time I wanted um, I introduced some sort of Slavic um, inspired languages in words as well. Like mm -hmm, I noticed that, yeah, and, yeah, and, and, and a little bit of, of Baltic. Um, my wife has um, some Lithuanian heritage, so you know, some sort of Baltic inspired language there too, and I. What I wanted to do with that was um, distinguish the, subtly distinguish the provinces which sort of Sova has sort of occupied and conquered um, mm -hmm. from Sova it, itself, um, but but still in a way that made all of the countries and provinces feel kind of geographically contiguous. So there is some kind of bleed through in culture and naming conventions and things like that, and. I also find um, the, the great thing about the German toponymy as well. So all of your kind of your bergs and your dorfs and your shuts and your kind of um, you know all of the place place names that you have. Um, it, so you find Polsberg, for example, or, or Moldau, or um, 
I can't remember all of them now, but I, I use a lot of you know, Sudenberg, you know, because these place the German toponymy is very easy to follow. So, you know, I know Berg means fortress, for example. So mm-hmm. there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of layers within the within the map and the geographical region as well, and 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 it should, you know, hopefully, if I've done my research properly, it should kind of follow through. So I think Wolfenschutt um, is, is a you know is a place, and from memory, Schutt means you know gate or fortress or something like that. So. There's always kind of historical mu- meaning imbued in, in the language and, and certainly in the, in the place names. And I was I was um, I was largely inspired by the Holy Roman Empire, so I, I wanted to um, I wanted to reflect a kind of an empire which was kind of a mixture of late antiquity Rome and then like late medieval Holy Roman Empire, and so a, a real kind of mixture of multiple different. States and, and types of state and types of, you know, government and and I think the, sort of the Holy Roman Empire was a great a great place to kind of start for that and I did you know studied history at school and up until A level so when we did the Napoleonic Wars and things like that so I was completely sort of familiar with European history anyway um, and you know I, I read you know history nonfiction in my spare time so I sort of had a, a working knowledge of you know general European history certainly kind of you know in the in the medieval period and the kind of Napoleonic period and things like that. So I didn't do any, I did some research, but it, I, it, a lot of it is, you know, surface layer kind of cosmetic rather than a super deep dive. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on these things, but um, I just wanted to move away from a more kind of Anglo-centric world, which I think, uh, you know, a lot of fantasy. Yeah, it's been done a lot. Yeah, and just um, just try something a little, you know, a little different. And uh, and I don't think you get a great deal of um, a Teutonic or Slavic setting. I just thought it was something a bit more, a bit more interesting, and as I say, a bit different. Well, uh, the first novel, as we've been talking about, it it explores the provinces a bit, and we have different kinds of provinces. But you said uh, the second novel, we're going to visit Sova itself. Is that what you're working mm. on right now? I yeah, in fact, I, the second novel has has gone in for copy edit, so the the editorial process on the second book is is now nearly complete, um, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. which is great. Um, so I'm actually about well, I want to say about nearly sixty thousand words into the first draft of the the third book, which is, which will be the final one. So that's um, I'm working on the moment, and um, uh, as I say, it's a trilogy. So um, once that's finished, um, I, will, I will have to write something else. <laughs> I think I've, um, what I want to do ultimately is kind of another trilogy that's kind of set in the same empire, but you know, sort of 200 years in the future, so mm-hmm. a more kind of powder weapons based, you know, sort of just pre-industrial society, um, and explore you know more themes like. To change from the industrial society and things like that, so I think that that would be very interesting. But uh, that's a conversation to have with my, my agent and my editor first. Um, but that's what I'd like to do with it, certainly. Do you have a publication date for the second book yet? So each each book will be really is a year apart. So um, it'll be February 2023, and then the third book will be February 2024. And there's a German language edition coming out actually, I think next year. Um, oh, okay, great. For the yeah, yeah. So I don't know what they're going to do with all of my my little funny names and jokes and things, and I have to change the <laughs> names. 
No, no, they gave them, of course. <laughs> I think they didn't. Uh, Germans seem to be uh, appreciate irony. They are our neighbors here in mm, Switzerland. They, they so. definitely do, yeah. Uh -huh. Well, how do people uh, keep up with things like your publication dates and what you're working on now? What's the best way to keep up? Yeah, the best way is, you know, I'm fairly active on, on Twitter and I have a Twitter handle, which is just my name, so it's Richard underscore S underscore Swan. Um, and I also have a website, um, which is uh, stonetemplelibrary.com, um, which I infrequently update with things like that. But as I say, I'm fairly easy to find as everybody is these days, um, mainly on Twitter. Okay, well, thanks a lot for taking time out from your uh, copy edits to talk with me today. Thank you very much for having me, Gabrielle. It was a real pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Richard Swan about A Justice of Kings. Next month, we'll feature Foz Meadows' sweet queer fantasy romance, A Strange and Stubborn Endurance. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more. My handle is at Gabrielle Author. Till next time.